pray together. Almighty God, we worship you this morning. We desperately need you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to hear your voice. Lord, come among us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Come among us as we open up your word together. May your voice pierce our hearts. May your voice bring life to the dead. Lord, may your voice bring peace to those in turmoil. We need your voice. And we cry out to you in the name of Jesus and asking that he would be glorified and lifted up above all else. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We are going to continue our series today on the book of 1 Peter, and today we will be in chapter 1, verses 22, or verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. In verse 23, Peter refers to the Word of God as living and enduring, or abiding. And here is what I want you to hear from me as we begin, as I've been wrestling with this moment, as we are all wrestling this week. We need the Word of God to be spoken. We need God's word above all other words. There are many, many words in this moment, many important words, but we need God's word above them all. God's word invariably has something to say, something that we need to hear, something that can come into the chaos and address us from above. It's a word that is always relevant and true, as Peter says, living and enduring, It's a word that stands now and will stand forever. So my great hope and prayer as we come to this time today is that God will speak, that as we look at 1 Peter, we will hear the word of God. Our nation is in turmoil. Our churches are in turmoil. Our hearts are in turmoil. And there is good reason for this turmoil. Last Sunday, preaching to a predominantly white congregation in North Carolina, Esau McCauley, who is an assistant professor of New Testament studies at Wheaton College and who is black, after bringing up George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, said this to the congregation, quote, Some will hear me talk of these events and assume that I am bringing politics into the church. They will wonder why I am not upset about black-on-black crime, or the black family, or abortion, or looting, or whatever topic that avoids looking at the thing itself. The thing itself is the 400-year history of racial trauma and oppression that stalks black life in this country." End quote. There is much evil and injustice in the world, And the church should be opposed to all of it. That is our calling. But this thing, what Macaulay calls the thing itself, needs to be stated, addressed, and acknowledged. Several years ago, I attended a lecture by Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and author of Just Mercy at Boston University. To be honest, it was one of the most powerful lectures that I have ever heard, and part of that was because throughout his lecture, 
He infused the gospel without ever telling us that that's what he was doing. But one of the things he said I remember vividly. He said that America is great at talking about its strengths. And when he said this, he praised our nation for many of its great strengths. But then he said we are not so good at addressing our sins and faults and shortcomings. What may be true, what he said of America is true, of course, of every one of us. We're all pretty good at talking about our strengths and pretty good at overlooking our faults. I want to say, of course, that love of our country is not incompatible with love of Jesus, but it must be subordinated to that love of Jesus. Some of you have fought for this nation. Each week when I stand up to preach, I'm surrounded by plaques on both sides that list the names of young men who gave their lives for this nation. And for that, I thank you, and I believe we should all thank you. We enjoy many freedoms and protections that those living in other nations do not. And we should all be thankful for the blessings that we enjoy by being a part of this country, even the blessing to protest peacefully. Acknowledging this, however, does not mean that we cannot also take an honest look at the sins of our nation, including the sin of racism, which has meant that many blessings of this nation have not been shared equally by all who call this land home. Can't we be truthful about both? To be clear, racism is not unique to America. Someone in our community wrote me this week, and she told me that she and her husband have experienced racism in different countries in which they have lived around the globe across the past 30 years or so. Sin is a human problem, and sin leads to othering people who are different from us. And because sin is everywhere, then that kind of othering, which is at the heart of what racism is, is everywhere. But it is also true that this sin in particular has a unique place in American history. And its legacy, its lingering shadow into black life today, is the reason for the present unrest. This is what Macaulay called the thing itself in his sermon last Sunday. That should not be interpreted as a political statement. It is an acknowledgement of a present-day experience of so many in the black community, a reality and burden that the black people of our nation bear as a real burden, whether they are police officers, PhDs, pastors, or school children. The loud calls I have heard to the church this week are this. Will you bear that burden with us? Will you see us as your fellow image bearers and stand and work with us, for us, and alongside of us, to advocate for the dignity and equality of our black bodies alongside your white bodies and every other body that God has made? That question transcends politics. It is a human question. We can have very different politics, and I know that we cover the full spectrum at Park Street Church, and we can still address this question together as the people of God. It is a cry for justice that is rooted in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. For God made all humanity in its full range of colors, with equal dignity and in his image. And our cultures and ethnicities reflect varying dimensions of our creator who made us all. We need them all and all give glory to God. So Revelation 21, verse 26, they will bring into the new Jerusalem the glory and the honor of the nations. That is the future. 
And our aim as the church is to see that future brought into the present in the nations in which we live, to see that every human being is treated with equal honor, dignity, and respect. That is effectively what we mean when we talk about racial justice. And that is a gospel cry, a biblical cry, a worthy and laudable goal to pursue as God's people, as an outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the people of the God who, as we read in Psalm 33, verse 5, loves righteousness and justice. And he calls us to do justice, as I shared with you from Micah 6, 8 on Wednesday. This may give the church some atypical allies, but in this effort, that's okay. I was reading this week about all the charitable giving that's coming from companies like Apple, Coca-Cola, Nike, and Facebook, to name just four. And I'm honestly quite appreciative that there is such an overwhelming response. But let me say this, the church has the special sauce. We have Jesus, we have the cross, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a biblical backing, which is the only reason that these companies or anyone in the Western world has any genuine notion of human rights. See the interesting work of Tom Holland on this. We have a lifelong call to follow Jesus, which means doing justice, when not just when it is in the headlines or in our newsfeed, but at all times, even when it is unpopular. For example, in the issue of pursuing justice for the unborn. This is a large part of why the church's history with racism is so painful. We were supposed to be the solution, to be the preview, the trailer through which the world could see the future feature film of the new creation in the present day. Beauty in diversity, creating harmony in unity together. God's original creation order restored in the body of Christ. We were supposed to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. That's Romans 15, 7. But instead of being different from the sinful world around us, like Israel long ago, we too have mirrored the world far too frequently. And we were not immune to that even here at Park Street Church. So there's truth-telling that needs to be done as we seek to move forward in solidarity with true justice. But we can do that truth-telling because of the cross. And even in that, there is hope for us because Christ is our hope, our only hope. In Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we are forgiven and we are free and we are empowered by the Spirit of God and we are deeply loved. We need all of those truths within us as we engage in this action. So I want to encourage us to let's move forward together in the work of racial justice with humility and with great courage, lifting high the cross as we do so, the place where God's mercy, justice, and love are on full display. I'd like our time in 1 Peter to help us as we pursue this effort together. There are two imperatives in this passage today that can inform our ongoing work for justice as the body of Christ. First, in verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart. And second, in verse 2 of chapter 2, crave pure spiritual milk. Love one another deeply from the heart. 
crave pure spiritual milk. We'll consider both of these imperatives in turn, aiming to hear the word of the Lord in them in this trying, intense time, a word that I trust will bring new life and strength for us as we seek to live faithfully as his people together in this moment. First, Peter calls us to love one another. I've entitled this message A Loving Hope because this first imperative in our text dominates not only this text, but the entire New Testament and really the entirety of the Christian life. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the formation not just of a renewed or holy or hope-filled individuals, but it is the formation of a new community, a countercultural community of people who love one another, who are defined by love. For one another. This is foundational and basic. The New Testament teaching goes far, so far as to suggest that the grace of God in Christ is not real in our lives apart from engagement with and being expressed in and worked out in these spirit-empowered communities of self-giving love, what we call churches, that have been established by the gospel. That is certainly clear in a book like the book of Galatians. It is clear again in the ministry of Jesus. I remind you again of the new commandment that Jesus gives to us the night before he was crucified in John 13. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. This is how everybody will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is your distinguishing feature. This is your primary marker. And Peter lands on this here early on as he's expositing Christian self-understanding. Love one another, he says. This is central. And it should come as no surprise. This is the God who created the world. This is the God who loves the world. This is the God who knows who we are as human beings and knows what we need and what we need above all else, what we long for, what we were created for is love. Roger Angel is a well-known essayist, mostly wrote on the topic of sports. He's now 99 years old. Four years ago or five years ago in 2015, he wrote an article on aging for The New Yorker. And this is what he said, getting old is the second biggest surprise of my life, but the first, by a mile, is our unceasing need for deep attachment and intimate love. From a man who had lived 95 years when he wrote that statement, surveyed the world and recognized to his surprise that what we need most is deep attachment and intimate love that which we most need. Would it not make sense that we would find that when we are reconciled to our Creator and brought into a community of people that He has called into existence out of the Gospel to bear witness into a world of brokenness and division and pain? Love one another, Peter says. Who then is included in the one another? Well, specifically, Peter is writing to the church, and and that would include anyone who is in Christ. That does not mean, however, that we are not called to radically love our enemies, to love our neighbors, and to pursue justice for all as an outflow of that love. Justice is deeply embedded in the deeper call of love as the church. Think about Mother Teresa loving the untouchables in Calcutta. Talk about showing the world the powerful truth of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that every human being has equal dignity. Our love knows no bounds because the love of God knows no bounds. But the love about which Peter is writing specifically here in this text is about our love for one another, for brothers and sisters in Christ. This includes people who are like us and people who are not like us, including those with different ethnicities and cultures. Early scholarship on 1 Peter assumed that the 
majority of his audience were Jewish believers. More contemporary scholarship has, has uh, gone in the other direction to say that, no, the majority of Peter's audience are Gentile believers. The reality is that we are almost certain that within the churches to whom Peter writes, there were Jew and Gentile Christians, and they were being called across those ethnic lines, lines in which there had been very serious feelings of hardship and unrest and lack of peace to love one another. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in the flesh of Jesus Christ at the cross so that peace could be established. It wasn't always easy. Still isn't easy in the church to love one another across these lines. And there were conflicts. We think of Acts chapter 6 when there was a dispute in the earliest church in Jerusalem between the Hebrews and the Hellenists over the treatment of their widows. That was ethnic tension in the earliest church. But the call to love one another remained. It remained central. Park Street Church is broad. It's a broad church. That is a strength and a challenge. We have many different kinds of people and many varied and strongly held opinions on basically every issue under the sun, including political issues and the question about the best approach for pursuing racial justice. As we press into that latter matter together, there will be ample opportunity to other each other. And othering is the opposite of love. I did something like this with you during my candidating sermon here at Park Street on February 2nd, but taking it further today, I want you to think about the person that is so opposite from you in this church, the person whose opinions are so strong and, and abrasive to you that you're constantly trying to avoid him or her. Maybe the person with whom you're in major disagreement with right now. That's the person that you are called to love, to pray for. That doesn't mean that we tolerate sin as a community or that we don't speak the truth in love to one another, Ephesians 4.15, especially in the context of, of relationship. This kind of honesty in relationship is a crucial part of Christian love. But we always focus in those conversations first and primarily on the log in our own eye before we point out the speck in our brother or sister's eye. And this call to love one another extends beyond the walls of Park Street Church. When Peter wrote these words, he was writing to the church in different regions, as he says in the opening of the letter, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And to this list, we could add, and Boston, church in Boston, to love one another across all lines of difference, ethnic lines, socioeconomic lines, denominational lines. There is only one church in this city, as there was only one church in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Jesus is its great shepherd. And he calls us to welcome one another, to love one another. And this church isn't colorblind, but it includes people from many different ethnicities and embraces the beauty, diversity, and unique ways of imaging God found through and among these differences. And we need that as the body of Christ. This is something to embrace and to welcome. The witness to Christ in our city needs that. We are to love one another. I want to invite you all to a prayer gathering next Sunday at 2.30 on the Boston Common that will be face masked and properly physically distanced that is led by Christians of different ethnicities just simply seeking the Lord to pray in this time. 
When Peter says love one another, he really means love. He doesn't just mean tolerate each other. Consider briefly just his words on the quality of this love in this text. It is to be sincere, verse 22, not phony, not putting on a mask and play acting, but genuine. I, really, I think of a moment that every parent has had maybe more times than we would like to admit when we say to our, our, our children when they're in a fight, we say to the one who offended, go tell your sister that you're sorry and mean it. I'm not sure how well that works, but in a sense, that's what Peter is saying here. Love one another with sincere love. Mean this love. Love one another deeply, he says, or earnestly, fervently, constantly. And he says, from the heart. This is a love that is not shallow or superficial, but has deep roots and so remains vibrant and regular. It doesn't fade away or grow cold over time. It's a love that comes from the center of our being, not merely as a put-up-with part of what we have to do. Not an afterthought, but the central burden of our lives. And finally, Peter says it's a brotherly love. He says that you've been uh, purified yourselves by obeying the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Philadelphia, a brotherly love. He's used family language, calling us obedient children, referring to God as Father throughout the letter already. This love is a stick-to-you love displayed in healthy families. You don't choose your family. You don't choose the church. You don't choose who God welcomes, but you love them because he has welcomed you as family, as brothers and sisters. In chapter 2, verse 1, Peter depicts the opposite of this kind of love, telling us to rid ourselves or put off, to take off, like taking off a pair of clothes, all malice, having ill intent toward another, all deceit, which is the intent to conceal or mislead from the truth, usually to advantage oneself or to a disadvantage another. Hypocrisy, again, no play-acting or pretending. Envy, the coveting the gifts or possessions of another, and all slander, using your words to cut someone down. These things, he says, take off these old behaviors. Those go with the old way of life. This violates love and undermines love, so get rid of it in your lives, Peter says. Don't let this infiltrate the relationships that you have with one another in the church. Or don't let this infiltrate the way in which you speak about one another in the church. Let me ask, what is the origin of this life of love? Because Peter features that in verses 22 through 25. It is, quite simply, the powerful word of God. So in verse 22, they have purified themselves by obeying the truth. That's hearkening back to their hearing the gospel summons that Jesus is Lord and calling people to repentance and to faith and to trusting in him. And they responded and they were changed. In verse 23, to defend the call to love, he says, because or since or for you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, of the living and enduring word of God. That word that was spoken, that gospel that was proclaimed, that changed you on the inside. That brought you into a new kind of life with a new kind of power. And that is the foundation of your now call to live a life of love with one another. In verse 25, he says that this word is the word that was preached to you. This living and enduring word is the word of the gospel about Jesus' lordship that was proclaimed to you that you have come to obey and come under. And this word is the foundation of your life of love. And what Peter goes on to say as he quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8, is he goes on to say that this word that is the foundation of your life of love, this word is what lasts forever. And he contrasts the word of the Lord that stands forever through the prophet Isaiah with the glory of this world, of flesh. Those glories, those things that we're so impressed by, those things are fading away like a springtime flower that blossoms and a week later is gone. 
It is the word of God and the community of love that that word creates and produces that will last forever. The new creation where all rights, wrongs will be righted, that lasts forever. And what Peter is saying here when he draws attention to the enduring nature of this word that is the foundation of their life of love is he's saying, I want you to live in light of that end. Again, as we saw two weeks ago when we were in First Peter, live in light of the end, live in light of what will last. Give yourself fully to this life of love as children of God who are beloved. This is the word that lasts. He quotes Isaiah. Isaiah's words are calibrated to, to exiles in the 6th century. Peter's words are, are calibrated to exiles in the 1st century and now processed and heard by exiles in the 21st century. Surrounded by the glories of this world, by the prizes of this life, think about the exiles in Babylon and the, the amazing strength and power of the Babylonian Empire. Think about the exiles in the first century and the amazing strength of Rome all around them. Think about the exiles that we are today and the strength and glories of riches and wealth and power that are all around us today. He's saying this word of comfort, this word that your God is coming to reign and to rule, this word is what encourages you in the present to give your life to him. Give your life to this way of love for one another. We need this exhortation to love in our world of turmoil right now. We need this as we engage more intentionally as a body in the work of racial justice and racial reconciliation. Emotions will run high. They already are. It will be easy to offend and to misunderstand. It will be quick. We, we can be quick to dismiss one another. But we are called to love one another as the body of Christ. And let us love our brothers and sisters in Christ across the city. Let us pursue justice for all. Let us pray. Let us listen. Let us learn. Let us empathize. Let us act. But above all, let us love. That is how we will be set apart from the world. That is what will infuse our efforts toward justice with a quality, a commitment, a sacrificial nature, and a longevity that is unsurpassed. Let's love. The second imperative is to crave pure spiritual milk, and I'll deal with this one much more briefly. Chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that you, by it you may grow up to your, into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's easiest perhaps to read these three verses backwards if you have it open in front of you. You have tasted that the Lord is good in your first encounter with the gospel. So crave pure spiritual milk in part by ridding yourself of these evil practices that violate the way of love that define your new life. Elsewhere in Scripture, spiritual milk implies a weaker diet of spiritual truths that the mature need to move beyond. But that connotation is not here in Peter's letter, and we need not import it as it is in 1 Corinthians 3.2 or Hebrews 4.13. Peter is playing on the, on the new birth theme and saying to us, be like a newborn baby that brought into this new life craves and longs for its mother's milk as a, as a vital necessity to grow up into maturity. In the same way, crave and long for the pure spiritual milk that sustains your new life in Jesus, this life of love. Now, most scholars have thought that this milk refers to the Word of God, but a good case can be made for thinking of this more widely as craving God himself in, in light of Psalm 34, which Peter is clearly working with here, and in light of the underlying word translated spiritual, which can, be, can mean really in, in nature with true reality. 
craving God. Yes, certainly we find God centrally in his word, but also in the sacraments, in the Christian community, in the Holy Spirit, in prayer, in worship, and in praise. And all of this, all of this is fitting to sustain and nurture and develop our new spiritual lives as newborn babies to crave these things that will defend and build up and nurture our life in Christ together as a community of love. Peter connects this to verse, verse 1, where he talks about the, the putting off, which we've already looked at. But there is a sense in which craving this pure spiritual milk means at the same time, simultaneously, and this is connected to Psalm 34, throwing away the evil practices that so grab us and, and woo us, including the practice of isolation or of injustice by not knowing or caring about the plight of our neighbor. We must remember this exhortation to crave pure spiritual milk. As we pray prayers of lament and as we struggle with feelings of anger and guilt and frustration and shame, as we pursue justice, as some of us even join in protesting peacefully, all of those things are good and we do them to the glory of God. But above all, we need the pure spiritual milk of God himself, of his cross, which holds us together and gives us the resources to hold one another together in one body. To hold our brother's anger and our sister's guilt, our own sense of shame. We need the power of the Spirit. We need the living hope of the resurrection. Crave these things that are fitting to our new life in Christ, that nourish that new life. Long for them as a baby longs for the milk of its mother. Without them, all our best efforts at racial justice will end in bitterness, division, and sectarianism. With them, however, we will remain the people of God, united in love, holding together in love, sincere love, self-giving love, justice-pursuing love. So I close by saying, as we pursue racial justice together, let us do so as people defined by love and craving God himself above all. Let us keep these two imperatives in the center of all our pursuits in the coming days and months and years, not to displace our efforts at justice, but so that these efforts can be truly effective to the glory of God and to the good of all our neighbors who are made in God's image, worthy of equal dignity and respect. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we cry out to you as needy children, Oh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us in new ways that in this moment of history, in this moment in our lives, that we would love one another deeply from the heart. At Park Street Church and with all the churches in Boston and around the globe that proclaim your son. Oh, God, put within us a craving, a longing for you. Let us desire you above all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.